before I read the scripture passage for this morning, I will give you a, a brief update from Penny Naki. She says that uh, uh, Charlie was in the hospital. She, they believe it's shingles. Um, one side of his face involved centered around his eye. Uh, she's asked that we would pray that his vision won't be affected, but that he will be discharged shortly. So um, you don't usually give updates, and I usually don't check my messages during the service, but I did now, and uh, I'm very guilty. Uh, however, my phone was silenced. Uh, I'm a good citizen, uh, so no one heard it. No one knew, but hopefully that was appreciated, that little update, if any of you were concerned about Charlie and Penny. Um, let me read now. Let's hear now from God's word, from the, go- from the book, not the gospel of Hebrews, from the book of Hebrews chapter 2. As we read verses 5 through 13, the next two Sundays, we'll be reading from Hebrews. We'll be reading part of this week's passage again next week, and we're going to be doing basically a two-part series. So, beginning in verse 5, hear now the word of God. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inspired and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are handling holy things today, things concerning your son whom you love. And so would you protect his honor? Would you protect his glory today by protecting me from introducing anything here that you have not yourself said? Would you ensure that the faithful words passed down would be what we hear and that they would be what we understand today by means of your Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Jesus himself in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I, uh, I freely confess that if I asked each of you where someone might go in Scripture to understand the incarnation, you might have some of your own ideas. Uh, In fact, maybe some of you said, why wasn't he reading from Luke this morning? Why wasn't he reading about the child being born in Bethlehem? Why wasn't he reading about the manger? I demand answers. Um, 
you know, I, I think for most of you, if I was to ask you, where is the passage? Where is the place? Where, where would you go if you want to understand the incarnation, if you want to think deeply about the incarnation? I think Hebrews is not where our instincts go. Um, I think our instinct goes to early in the Gospel of Matthew or early in the Gospel of Luke. Um, that's where I instinctively go to the actual, uh, the actual narratives of the birth of the child. But this book before us this morning, the book of Hebrews, and this same book we'll be looking at next week, it is rich. It is rich with the glory of God. It is a, it is a book that is rich with explanations of the deep things of God when it comes to the incarnation. Um, because at its core, Hebrews is a book that is about the grand topic of the superiority of Jesus. It's a book about why you cannot find any creature in all of the universe that is greater than God the incarnate. The, the incarnation is the thing. C.S. Lewis called the grand miracle. And today's text is the first step of the author's argument that because of this grand miracle, there is none greater than God the Son. Now, I say that very carefully. Um, the incarnation is the first step toward proving the superiority of Jesus, but it's not the whole argument, and it's not the end of the argument. The incarnation is the beginning. So we need to be careful not to think of the incarnation as being the same thing as our salvation. Um, the incarnation is the beginning of our redemption. It is required for our redemption, but in order to be saved, more is necessary. See, the Lord Jesus also had to be humiliated. Uh, and that humiliation does begin at the incarnation. When the child is born, he is humiliated. He's brought low. Um, and so the humiliation begins at the incarnation. Becoming that child in the manger was the first step of that humiliation. It continued throughout his life of obedience. The question is why? Why all of this? Why? What was the grand plan? Uh, why the birth of the child? Why is that the path to get us there? Why is that the path to salvation? Well, the author of Hebrews takes us there this morning. We're going to be looking at his argument in four points, uh, each of them straight out of the text. We're only going to look at the first two this week, and then next week we're going to look at the second part of his argument for why the incarnation was necessary. So just this morning, though, we have two points. First, the child was born to fulfill God's plan for mankind. Second, he was born to bring many sons to glory. He was born to fulfill God's plan for mankind. He was born to bring many sons to glory. Um, you may love the holiday season, and you may love the feeling of this time of year, but your appreciation of this time ought to be deeper than sentimentality and emotions. What we need is something deep that can't be uprooted, that even if sickness and sorrow and troubles invade this time of year, and for many of you it has, and for many of you it has in years past, our enjoyment of the season needs to be deeply rooted, something that can't be taken even by a shallow disturbance of circumstances, something that goes all the way to the roots of the mountains. And that's what Hebrews is giving to us here this morning, so that whatever's going on in your life, whatever your, this season of your life is, whether everything is running smoothly or whether it is running as rocky as it possibly could, one thing is for sure, you have joy that has deep roots, not shallow roots. And that's what Hebrews is giving to us today. 
And so let's look at the first, first reason why the, the child was born. First, this morning, we see the child was born to fulfill God's plan for mankind. Um, what the author does in the first four verses of our reading is, he, he says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So before this, he was arguing that the sun is greater than angels. Uh, I don't know if you experience temptations to elevate angels, to make a big deal about angels, to give attention to angels, but the, the author of Hebrews is writing in a situation where people need to understand that neither is Jesus an angel, nor is he lower than angels, but that he is actually superior to the angels. Um, and so his point is that in the world to come, that world is not a world that is governed by angels. Um, when I was looking at good summaries of what the point that he's making here is, I actually found John Owen, and John Owen is not usually the first person I go to to make something simpler. Uh, usually he's the one that you then interpret. Uh, but listen to what Owen says. He says, the church was not put in subjection to angels when it was founded. The church is not subjected to, subjected to angels in its work. The role of angels in this world is a ministry, not of ruling or reigning. Angels have no rule in or over the church. They join the church in giving testimony to Jesus. See, Jesus is greater than angels, the author says, because God's plan was never to set angels over creation. So who is supposed to be over creation? Well, verse 5 only tells us who crea whom creation won't be subject to, right? It won't be angels. But what's the positive answer? You actually see it in the book of Genesis. But you also see it if you keep going in our reading. The author quotes from Psalm 8 to find the answer. In the psalm, the author asks this question. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So the answer is humanity was supposed to rule over creation. Uh, in this psalm, what's David doing? David's rejoicing in the exalted position that human beings have in the universe, and he is marveling that God chose to do this for us at all. Lord, you are amazing and you are gracious. You let human beings play a role in your majestic mission when we really deserve to be forgotten and set aside and cast away. And you haven't forgotten us. You haven't left us out of your work in this world, right? It's a psalm that takes us back to the original plan for mankind. I mentioned the book of Genesis. We were supposed to be guardians of the Garden of Eden. We were supposed to be defenders of the earth. We were supposed to, I realize that sounds like a superhero reference, but we were. We were supposed to be defenders of the earth, defenders of the garden. We were meant to keep out creatures like the serpent. We were, we were supposed to rule over creation and serve as God's representatives, subduing the earth. When the fall took place, in some ways what it did was it displaced us from that position and instead, we became dominated by creation. But the plan has not been erased. The plan is for us to revisit that original design and fulfill it. Actually, it's for God to revisit that original design and fulfill it in us. So it's not a plan that gets set aside. It's not like it gets rejected and turned away. And, and that's the author of Hebrews' point here. How does that connect 
with his point about the birth of the Son of God? Well, he, after he quotes Psalm 8, the author says this, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in, subjected, in subjection to him. Now the thought is connected and comes full circle. So here it is. That plan for humanity to rule the earth is still in effect. And it is restored in Jesus. Humanity was supposed to rule, but the son does rule. Why does this fulfill the original purpose of humanity? Because the son is a man. He is not an angel. He is a man. He is not some third category of being. It's not like he's almost man, uh, but, but, but not man. It's not like he's a partial man and a partial God. He's not a hybrid of us and God. Instead, he is fully man, a real man, a perfect man. And God has put everything in subjection under his feet. He stands in the place that Adam was supposed to stand in the garden. And so we as a fallen race, we may have failed to rule as we were originally supposed to, but not Jesus. Jesus achieved where we failed. We were supposed to be good guardians of the garden. And Jesus was a good guardian of the garden. When he met the serpent, he fought him. He didn't concede to him. He didn't listen to him. He didn't follow his suggestions. Instead, he cast him out of the gardens. See, Jesus achieved where we failed. And in him, we begin to see that restoration taking place. Humanity ruling again. But we also see that this restoration the author talks about happens in stages, right? Um, there's frustration. It's not complete, um, if any of you garden in this world, if any of you ever take care of plants, if you ever uh, try your, to have a green thumb, which that's all I do is try, and I barely try, uh, then you know there's still frustration in this world. The garden is not where it ought to be yet, and our lives are not what they ought to be yet. Um, the author of Hebrews is saying, yeah, we live in the in-between time. Um, we don't yet rule like he originally created us to. The completion of it's still future. It's still out there. It hasn't completely happened yet, but it has started in Jesus. It started in Christ. And one day humanity will rule and judge the world. Jesus tells us that in the gospel. So at once the author had us looking back and looking forward, right? We're looking back to Genesis. We're looking back to the future. That's what we're doing. Um, and we see what we were and when we see what we were intended to be, we also see who we are in Christ and who we will be one day. And so then he gets really explicit that the son, of, son at the incarnation is where this began. Let's go back to this text again. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So he's saying, if the child had not been born, if the incarnation had not taken place, if the son had not come to live among us, he could not have lived the genuine life of full humanity that he lived, and he could never have tasted death. 
right? God cannot taste death. The divine nature cannot die. Uh, God cannot die. And therefore, he could not have been, apart from the incarnation, he could not have been crowned as human king of creation that he is. Mankind was meant to rule. And in Christ, we do. If not for the incarnation, the plan of God that human beings would rule the earth would be frustrated and it would be incomplete. And so what are we seeing here already? We're seeing the first reason why the son came into the world. We're seeing the first reason why this child was born. The child was born to fulfill God's plan for mankind. The plan that started in the book of Genesis is being restored in Jesus. Second, we see that the child was born to bring many sons to glory. Now, the author touched on this already, but in verse 10, he gets explicit. The child had to be born so that many sons could be brought to glory. How are we supposed to fulfill the original purpose he had for us to rule, to protect to exercise dominion if we tried it and failed at it. How is that supposed to be fixed? How do you undo that? How do you get the toothpaste back in the tube? Well, we're redeemed. We're brought to glory by Jesus. That's, that's the answer here. What does it mean to be brought to glory? To be brought to glory means to be put back where we were supposed to be as those exercising dominion over the earth. And an angel could never do that, right? An angel could never do that for us. It had to be a man. It had to be one of us. Um, he actually uses the word fitting to describe that. He says it was fitting in verse 10. It says he was, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, it is tempting to stick with and follow that main idea. But if I could, I want to just look at that verse and follow the rabbit trail as it goes off. And, and then we will come back to the main thought here. But I just want us to rejoice in something just truly glorious here for a minute. Look how, look how the author of Hebrews addresses Jesus. It calls him, he for whom and by whom all things exist. All things exist for him. Creation is for him. We were made for him. The world was made for him. The universe is about him. The universe is centered around him. It's about exalting him. It's about glorifying him. It's about showing his greatness, displaying his majesty. Creation is like the canvas and on that canvas, what do we see? We see the skill of the painter, uh, whom the author says is none other than Jesus. Now, sometimes, as puny little human beings, it, it is good for our soul to hear the really obvious, that it is not about you. Uh, there's just something good for the soul in hearing it's not about you. And there is meant to be a, a weight lifted when we hear that. Someone could have truthfully said to Jesus, though, it is all about you. They could have said that to him. That's the only man in all of creation that you could have said, it's all about you. Paul actually says the same thing in Romans 11. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. He's not just talking about God in general. He's talking about Jesus there. 
creation is, is to him. It moves toward him. It is centered around him. He is the sun, S-U-N, and, and everything else orbits around him, right? He is not here for us. Ultimately, we are here for him. Uh, he, he says that all things exist by him. Or as Paul just said a moment ago, all things exist through him. This child who is born is also identified by the author as the one who is responsible for the existence of creation to begin with. Again, you have some similarities with Paul who said of Jesus, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17 John says something similar as well at the beginning of his gospel. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And so the author here doesn't just say that the child is born, and this child that's born is an exalted human being. He's a really high glorious human being. He doesn't just say that. He doesn't just say, God used this creature to create everything else, as Jehovah's Witnesses say, for example. He says, he existed before anything was created. And so he is no creature himself. He precedes created being. He is the person that existed before anything was ever made because the person of the Son is one with God. In the Son, God himself took on flesh and entered into our world. He became a part of it. He entered it. He endured it. He suffered in it. Even though three different authors in scriptures all say he's the one who made it to begin with. I just love that rabbit trail and I had to do it. To get back to the author's logic, though, why is the child born? Why did the creator enter into his creation? Because he had to bring many sons to glory through suffering. That's, that's the phrase he uses. He brings many sons to glory through suffering. Suffering is the path. He does it through suffering, not through power. He brings many sons to glory through suffering, not through conquest, not through strength. He does it through suffering. Suffering is the path. Weakness is the way. It is counterintuitive to think of this season as one where death should be in our eyes. You know, we tend to save that for, for the Passover. We tend to save that for Easter, right? Um, this is the time of year to think of life, right? To think of the little child, right? To think of the cozy manger and all of that. But these things don't just belong to one season, right? They can't be isolated from each other. You can't answer why he was born if you don't talk about the reason that he lived. These truths are essential to the whole narrative. They're essential parts of the whole narrative of the life of Jesus because his, his whole life is one big woven tapestry. And if you remove one part, if you pull on one string, you lose the whole story. It, it becomes nonsense. Even, even in the birth of Jesus, we can't avoid the life of Jesus. And in the life of Jesus, we cannot avoid the death of Jesus. His death is why he came and his birth is how he was able to die. 
Right? The, the author's telling us here, if you think of the incarnation, you must remember its purpose. His, its purpose is to bring many sons to glory. Its purpose is for him to suffer so that he can do that. And, and, and bringing even one son to glory is a magnificent and glorious and painful and costly work. It does not come cheaply. It is costly and bloody and painful. It comes through suffering, not through comfort. And there is no suffering for the son in his humanity if he's never born and never lives among us in the first place. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace to believe that forgiveness is easy. To think that God can just snap his fingers and forgive. That it can be as easy as God just saying, you're forgiven, I won't remember your sin against you anymore, and yet there's no price paid. And what he said was, he said, grace is not cheap because it is purchased at great cost by the greatest man who ever lived. It is costly to bring many sons to glory. Now, we saw last week the sinlessness of Jesus. We saw the perfection of Jesus. And we saw that the virgin birth was the means by which God ensured that the son was born without sin. So if the son is perfect, why does the author here say that the son was made perfect through suffering? If you and I were writing the gospel of Hebrews, or the, I keep calling it the gospel of Hebrews. If you and I were writing Hebrews, I think we would leave this phrase out. We would not think to include this phrase. What does the author here mean? How are we misunderstanding it? What are, what are we missing? Why does the author say the son was made perfect through suffering? How do you, how do you perfect the perfect? It might seem initially strange for him to say something like this. But you could answer in the context here. You can look, look around it for a moment. The word perfect here, it's not a reference to moral perfection. The argument's already been made that he's morally perfect. The idea is of completion. Uh, it's, it's the idea of fulfillment for a task. It's like the thing that, that needed to be done finally being done. Um, look at it again. It says, it was fitting that he, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So in this case, then, the task is to rescue people. Only by suffering does he become capable of saving. So it's not saying that suffering somehow morally perfects him or even personally completes him. It's saying that unless he suffers, he won't be our savior and he will not bring many sons and daughters to glory. That there is no such thing as a bloodless salvation. There is no such thing as a bloodless rescue. That rescue requires blood and that blood requires a body and that body requires a human nature and it requires that we be related to him. The rescuer he couldn't just be a new kind of human or, or an alien being who wasn't one of us. I, I'm, I know I sound like I'm making fun of the idea uh, of, of him not being a human being, therefore being an alien. But if you think about it, he must be related to us. He can't simply teleport down Star Trek style and just sort of be here. Um, that's actually been one of his arguments here. Um, you see it as he keeps going. Why was it fitting for him to suffer in order to bring many sons to glory? Verse 11 says, for, 
He's going to tell us the reason. That's what that word for is. You need to hear an argument here when you see that word for. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Let me translate for you here. He's not ashamed to call them brothers, the text says, because he and the ones he saves have to share in the same nature. When it says they all have one source, when it says they all have one source, it's saying they all come from the same person. They ultimately all are members of the same human race from the same human seed. We are all sons of Adam and so is Jesus. Jesus bears an organic and physical relationship to all of us. We are the same human family as Jesus. And that's why the text actually says that Jesus is our brother. He's a fellow bearer of the human nature. I bet you don't think of Jesus as your brother. Uh, You and Jesus share the same great, 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 great. Put an asterisk and then however many greats that needs to be. Grandfather. (laughs) We all share the same great, 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 great. Grandfather. He was truly, actually one of us. Um, One of the things that in my wife's family, they will occasionally mention that uh, they have family members who are from the Spencer family who have some connection with the royal family in England. And that is a very exciting thought, that somehow you are connected with the royal family of England. And I just want you all to be excited to know that you have a great, 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 that is related to the same man whom Jesus was born to. You are family members with Jesus. He is a fellow human being with you. Way more exciting than having a a king or a queen somewhere on that family tree. Um, He was truly, actually one of us. He was made from the substance of Mary, who was herself a daughter of Adam and Eve. Hebrews is saying, we all have one source. That source was ultimately Adam and Eve. The Lord Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers because he came to rescue us. The fact that he is our brother means that his life and death are meaningful for us. That God who made it all, who created all things, entered into the story. And he didn't just come to make a cameo and and then bail out quickly. It turns out the story was all about him. It was all centered around him. It was all written by him. Everything about this world turns on him as the fulcrum. Everything that took place was so that you and I could have him as our brother and he, carrying the same human nature we live in, could live a different life than we've lived, a better life than we've lived, right? We sin, we fail, uh, we hurt each other, we disappoint, we make idols, We worship ourselves. He did it all perfectly. He loved the Father above all things. He loved others. He blessed others. He had no idols. He never failed. And he did it while living as our brother with the same human nature that he shares with all of us. Where we have been faithless, he has been faithful. We're going to see this more next week as we look at this passage more, but I I think I would be remiss not to point this out. 
he walked this earth as a fellow human being, as, as a bearer of the human nature. He is, he's all of our brother. He's even the brother of the pagan walking the street who does not care a thing for Jesus. He is, he is their fellow brother. The question is not whether Jesus is your brother. The question is, is he your savior? Because as, as long as we refuse to turn to this one who came for us, as long as we refuse to lean uh, on him and stop leaning on ourselves, as long as we hope in what we can do and we hope in our deeds and we keep thinking of ourselves as good people who are moral and we keep defending ourselves and saying that we think we're really good people down to our core, when we have a brother who has lived all of it perfectly, as long as we refuse to admit that we're sinners, we can never know him as savior. Scripture tells us whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The truths of these things, they run deep. But the gospel itself, I will tell you this, is simple enough that even if you have felt lost as you have tried to follow the author of Hebrews' argument here, I will say this, that it is simple enough for even a child to hear and believe. And so whether you are a child whether you are a uh, hundred years old, whether you are one or one hundred, will you believe it today? Because this message is not simply a history lesson telling you about something that happened a long time ago and gee golly, isn't this interesting? There's a point here. The point here is he was born for a reason. He was born to save and he cannot be your savior if he will not be your Lord. He cannot be your savior if you will not take hold of him and trust in him and stop trusting in yourself. That's why he shared in our nature. It's why he shared in our trials. It's why he experienced our pain. It's why he shared our lives. It's why he shared our humiliation. He was born into humiliation. And he lived in it. And he lived it perfectly. He is not distant. He is not far away. He is not remote. He has walked in your shoes. He has felt your hurts. He has known your betrayals. He has experienced your weakness. He is one of us and he knows us. Do not re reduce this season to merely the birth of a child. It is the introduction of our savior who came not just to make an appearance. He came to make a rescue. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning asking for more than just knowledge, for more than just understanding, which, which we do want these things. But we can know all of these things and yet not love your son. So would you give us hearts that are continually repentant? Would you give us eyes to see and hearts that love you more than we love ourselves? Give us a love of your perfect son, in whose name we pray, amen. amen. Even this morning, I was speaking of the reality that the Lord Jesus a lot. If you say you're 90 years old, sounds like a lot. 90 Christmases doesn't sound like a lot. I think it's because a Christmas is a day, and a year is 365 days, right? She said, I've celebrated 90 Christmases. And I remember thinking, what an interesting way of putting it. And then I thought, wait, life is awfully short. 
life is short. It will go by in a blink. Only a certain number of Christmases, and eventually it will be your last. And if you're the sort to, to come to church a few times a year, especially, and you have a habit of putting off really resting in Jesus and, and being his disciple and taking being his disciple seriously, perhaps you tell yourself, one day, someday, I will take the call of Jesus seriously. I will see myself as a disciple. I will follow him closely. I will devote my life to him. He will be my Lord, not just somebody I admire. Maybe you've been putting it off. How many Christmases do you think the Lord will give you? How much longer can you put it off for? Um, some of you who are younger, you might get 70 more Christmases. Some of you might have 20 or 30 Christmases. For some of you, this could be your last Christmas. Not to go all Jonathan Edwards on you, but it could be. How many more Christmases do you have? How many more can you say next year? The real answer is you don't know. Life is too uncertain. God knows the truth. God knows the number. The numbers of your hairs are counted. He has numbered your years. He has a number written in his book. He knows what it is. The question you are responsible to answer is not what is that number. The question you're responsible to answer is have you placed your faith in the one who came and was born sinless and lived and died to save his people from their sins? Have you put your trust in him? That is the question you are responsible for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you were born of a virgin. We are thankful that you came into this world in such a miraculous, unexpected, and special way that only God could have achieved for us. We thank you that you were unstained by sin. We thank you that you really could be our spotless, unblemished Savior, that we could know forgiveness because you were our spotless Lamb. We pray these things in Jesus' name.